three weeks. Today we're going to carry on in uh, our series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. In this chapter, we see Jesus teaching different parables. Parables are meant to stick with you, and today's may be the stickiest of them all. Jesus taught in different parables. Through parables, Jesus threw together these concrete and everyday experiences and the reality of the kingdom of heaven to teach his audience about how the kingdom works. There were parables that taught about the surprising nature of the kingdom, like the parable of the mustard seed. And there were parables that taught about the upside-down nature of the kingdom, like the parables of the hidden treasure and the precious pearl. It doesn't make sense that you'd sell everything for this one thing. And then there's parables that require you to make a decision about Jesus and his kingdom. And that's what today's parable is. And yet, as you see, it's a decision that seems to be pointed specifically and directly at the people who actually encounter Jesus as followers. So, we're going to be looking at this parable, called, often called the parable of the net. It's in Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 50. And this is what it says. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord Jesus, you are the righteous one. And there's no one like you. Help us to understand your words today and enable us to stand under your words, to follow in your steps. You make it possible to be rightly related to God and to others. Would you help us in our weakness? Spark a hunger for your righteousness that will only and can only be satisfied by you. We pray that we'd have ears to hear you and encourage them to live in the ways you call us. In your name, amen. So this passage probably raises a bunch of questions for you as you hear it. Some of them probably not as pleasant as others. Why don't we just walk through some different questions that I think this parable raises for us and try to answer them. The first is one that we've been asking for each parable we've gone through. What is the subject of this parable? This is Jesus' seventh parable about the kingdom. And like his first two, he gives us his interpretation of it. Is this parable then about the great net that gets cast out, gathering all kinds of fish? Or is it about the sorting that takes place between the fish that are and aren't suitable to eat? We're forced to assume that there's a fisherman who casts out the net into the lake to catch fish. And he uh, he casts a net to catch good fish. Fish that uh, were this vital uh, resource. They'd symbolize uh, sustaining and nourishing material for life. There's this challenge, though. There's also fish that are bad in the sense that they're not uh, edible. Not in the sense that they're uh, uh, moral. Fish can't be moral. But just in the sense that they are ritually unclean for Jews. They weren't edible, and therefore, even if they caught them, they couldn't sell them. And this net will cast, uh, will gather fishes of every kind in it. And the fisherman and his crew then afterwards have to sort through the edible and unedible or useless fish. So what, what is this about? What does this mean? I want to suggest that Jesus is the great fisherman. We are not the fishermen. We're not to see ourselves as the ones who cast out. 
Jesus is the great fisherman. He is the one who cast the net out into the lake, and the lake is the world. The net is the church. The fish are people gathered by the great fishermen. And the fishermen who help sort the fish are angels. The gathering of the fish is uh, our current period of time. And the sorting of fish is the end of the world, or the end of the age. Now the bad fish, Jesus says, are these wicked people who are found to have ignored God's will as especially taught by Jesus. And the good or suitable fish are the righteous who are found to be rightly related to God. So as I understand it, we have this great fisherman who casts his net out, and he's got this interest in removing the uh, bad fish and keeping the good fish. Now when we think of Jesus' ministry and what he's been doing in the Gospel of Matthew, we're presented with this picture of Jesus actually fishing for people, of Jesus gathering new people into his kingdom, gathering them into his kingdom life, and showing them what this life is like. People who encounter him encounter this love, this compassion, his gentle and lowly heart. And as they do, they experience this renewal of their hearts, renewed lives, changed by the power of God's love. And this is what Jesus will begin to teach his disciples when one of the first invitations he makes to any disciple is in Matthew 4, we're told, Jesus says to some fishermen, he says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of people. The great fisherman is interested in gathering up many fish to himself. And when you are with me, he says, when you commit to following me, I will make you into something you are currently not right now. Come to me and I will make you into one who makes known what the king of heaven is like. Come to me and I will transform you into someone who begins to resemble the king of heaven and who plays a part in gathering others to me. What we see in the Gospels is this slow filling of a net that Jesus has cast out, drawing all kinds of characters into it. Some who are genuine seekers and some who maybe have ulterior motives or it's not entirely clear what those motives are until much later. But in this parable, the way it gets structured and set up, in the Greek, the emphasis lands on the second half of the parable, the latter half of it, the sorting of the fish. And so this parable is about Jesus' promise to finally separate the evil and the righteous on the day of judgment, on the end of the age, as Jesus puts it. So that brings up another question then. What does Jesus, the great fisherman, expect to find in his net? What does Jesus expect to find in his net? Jesus expects to find righteous people. At the end of the age, Jesus expects to find people of righteousness. When that curtain of history comes down, the kind of people that Jesus will be looking for are righteous people. And when the kingdom of heaven is revealed in its fullness, Jesus, and Jesus judges every human being, those who remain will be the ones that he judges righteous. Which, if you're like me, causes you to ask a question. What does that word even mean? What does righteous even mean? Because it's not a word that you and I use all the time. The Bible is packed full of this word, though, righteous, righteousness. It's a big deal to the authors of the Bible, and it's a big deal to Jesus. So what is it? I want to give a simple version of that word, and then I want to go dive a bit deeper. So the simple version is righteousness is about being rightly related or in right relationship. 
If you think of a diamond, there's many facets to a diamond. And that's uh, what the idea of righteousness is like. And I want to highlight three facets of righteousness that are central to understanding as we see in the Bible. The first is this. Righteousness often refers to God's saving acts in history. The primary way that the Bible talks about righteousness is God's righteousness and being rightly related to Him. And there's this process by which that happens. And so this first facet is God's righteousness often refers to God's saving acts in history. God's saving acts are how God establishes and confirms His relationship with His people. For Israel in the Old Testament, you see this happen with them in the Exodus. God frees them from slavery to Egypt. And in our story, the story we get drawn into, the way we see God's saving act in history is in the arrival of Jesus. It's Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And this is something that God does on our behalf. God has moved to rescue and renew his creation, you and I, and that's his righteousness revealed. And this is why Paul will say in Romans 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save. See, Jesus is looking for people who recognize him as the king who saves, as the king who lays down his life in order to gather us before the Father. The second facet is this. Righteousness also refers to our new status, accepted by God. Because of God's saving act, we have a new status before God. What's the first thing that God will tell Israel when he gives them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20? Not the first command. What's the first thing he says to them? We're told in in verse 2 of Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am the Lord your God. I am your God. The first and primary and most important thing you need to know is that I am your God. And you are my people. You are my people. And if you're his people, it means he accepts you in his presence. He wants you in his presence. He delights in your presence. Therefore, when we look at the Ten Commandments as they follow, this is God giving his people a picture of what it means to be rightly related to him because they're his people. Because I'm your God and you are my people, this is the way you're going to live. And so when we look at the Ten Commandments, the first five are how you relate to him. The, second five, the next five are how you relate to others. And this is what Jesus does for anyone who puts their trust in him. He brings us into this relationship with God. He establishes it. And he gives us a new status. In 1 Peter 3, Peter will write saying, Look, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. His desire, the great fisherman, is to gather us up and bring us before the Father. Ephesians 2 will say something similar. For through Jesus, we both Jewish and non-Jewish believers have access in one spirit to the Father. In him, in Jesus, through his saving acts, we become the righteousness of God. We're gathered into the very presence of God. God doesn't count your sin against you. Instead, he counts Jesus' righteous life and acts as if... They belong to you as if you were righteous in each moment of your life. This is what Jesus does on our behalf. And these first two things, the saving acts and this new status we receive, there's nothing that you and I actually do. There's nothing we do to earn that. There's nothing that we contribute to establish this relationship. 
We have nothing to bring but a great need. And yet it's because of these two things that a real change is made possible. A personal and social transformation can take place among us. Because knowing God and being in His presence always changes us. And Jesus is looking for people who will receive His gift of salvation and enjoy the gift of being accepted by God because of it. But this third facet is important because many of us will have heard these first two. If you've grown up in the church, you'll be familiar with those ideas. But this third sometimes gets underemphasized. The third is righteousness refers to how we live in response to what he has done for us. Our response to God's righteousness is that of joy and gratitude and a desire to live in right relationship with him, to live in a way that pleases him. This third facet of righteousness is about being a doer of the will of God as especially revealed in Jesus. And this is why I started with this idea that righteousness is about being rightly related. God establishes that, but then there's this response we have to being in relationship with him. Our response to God's salvation and acceptance will flow out of our lives in at least four ways. We'll seek to live in right relationship with God, with others, ourselves, and creation. Righteousness is all about relationship. It's not a quality. It's not about abiding by the set of laws, but it's about living in faithfulness to the terms of a relationship, a terms of a relationship that God establishes with us. Like a spouse who lives up to their terms of their marriage covenant. They're righteous in the sense that they're rightly related. Like a citizen who lives up to the expectation of civil order. It's a righteous person. When I live up to the terms of my relationship as a father with my sons, I'm rightly related to them. And when I'm not, something's off in the relationship. And either my children make me know or I actually experience it and I feel it. All of us know what that's like. When there's something, when we're not rightly related to someone else, we feel that. We're aware of it. Something's off there that needs to be made right. Therefore, to sum it up, at the end of time, when the curtain of history comes down, Jesus will be looking for three things in people. People who recognize them as the king who saves. People who received his gift of salvation. And finally, people who sought to live in right relationship with God others, ourselves, and creation. So what does this look like? Simply, this looks like loving God and loving others in action. If you read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews 5 through 7, or Jesus' sermon on mission in Matthew 10, or his sermon on the kingdom here in Matthew 13, and then throughout the gospel, you see how he lives this, how he invites others into this. And the letters of the New Testament, we see how this gets spelled out. Go and discover what this looks like, but then do it. It's so easy to be hearers, but then not doers, not actual practitioners of actually being seeking to live rightly related to him. Live differently because he saved you, because he declares you accepted, because you're in relationship with him, and you're ultimately accountable to him. And so that's what Jesus is looking for, people who do the will of God, as revealed in Jesus. Those are the fish that Jesus is saying will remain when the kingdom is fully revealed. Right now, you and I live in this period, though, where this net has been cast out, and it continues to gather. 
more fish. And yet in the future, there are days in the days to come, he says this net, when it's finally full, he, no one else, he will be the, sort, the one deciding how these things get sorted out through this framework of who's rightly related to me. But there's another question that comes up when we read this parable. What makes Jesus decide some people are unfit for the kingdom at the end of the age? In this parable, a part that we hear that may bother us is like, what do you mean some people are, some fish are thrown away? The fish are not bad in this moral sense. They obviously cannot be moral. But when Jesus begins to explain it, he says, look, the evil people who are evil will be removed. Well, so what makes people unfit? What's that picture? That's that word. We get our answer in verse 49. He says, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. The ESV, if you read that translation, will render it more literally. It's going to say, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. It's evil. Because evil is opposed to God's purposes, will, and ways. Evil disregards the will of God as especially revealed in Jesus. Evil gets personified in Satan, this personal, malevolent, spiritual being who's working to thwart God's purposes. And when you read the parable of the weed and the wheats, we get this picture of how the enemy's trying to thwart the purposes of God in the world. But in this parable, Jesus emphasizes evil as a characteristic of human beings, meaning the evil ones are people who disregard doing the will of God as revealed by Jesus. Now, that might sound like, oh, okay, I don't really, do I disregard the will of God as revealed in Jesus? Maybe sometimes. Maybe sometimes I don't want to do those certain things. But what I think is challenging for us and that we need to understand is if the net is the church, he's actually speaking to those people that would seem to be visu- uh, visibly gathered. It's not actually Jesus warning the world. He's warning the people who would be most closely identifying themselves with him. And so there's this thing we need to be paying attention to. Do I actually take the call of Jesus seriously? Do I actually take this relationship that I've been brought into seriously? Does it matter to me to actually live the will of God? See, the goal of righteousness is the flourishing of humanity. When humanity flourishes, God is glorified because humanity is living in the way he intended for them. And humanity experiences joy. And evil, then, is this indifference to Jesus and doing his will. This indifference to being rightly related to God and then to others, to creation. It's it's this indifference to the flourishing of humanity as God intended. See, instead of flourishing, evil creates injustice. Like a person who steals from another person or a person who hurls his insults at another. Something happens to that relationship. It, it damages the relationship. They owe something to that relationship to make it right again. And instead of flourishing, evil will damage a relationship by creating this emotional wound and a lack of trust that somehow has to be made right. All human beings in our lives will commit evil. All human beings apart from Jesus actually fail to live and be rightly related to God and others and even ourselves. And here's the thing, though. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about righteousness. The good news of Jesus Christ is all about righteousness. 
The gospel is all about God breaking into our world and restoring us to right relationship with God, ourselves, others, and the world. He has come into our painful, unrighteous world and begun restoring it to its right relational purpose. That's what God is doing in and through Jesus. Jesus is righteousizing all of our broken relationships. This is why Jesus will teach that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because as one scholar will put it, those people who hunger and thirst, they don't believe they can live until they find or see righteousness. They long for what is right. They crave justice. They cannot live without God's victory prevailing. For them, right relations in the world are not just a luxury or a mere hope, but an absolute necessity if they are to live at all. And this is what Jesus does through his life, his death, his resurrection. And this parable is one of his promises that we will see, that he will see his plan through to completion. Evil doesn't want any part of that. At, at best, it's indifferent. And at worst, it's actively fighting against it. So you know what Jesus will say in the end? He will turn evil people over to their desires. Evil people oppose his will and ways as revealed in Jesus. And so Jesus will ultimately say to them, if you don't want my kingdom, you don't want me, you can have it your way. But you, there will be this day where he says, you will no longer have the freedom to create injustice or vandalize human beings made in my image that I have rescued and renewed. And what a place absent of God's love and grace looks like is, an exp- is a place an experience of regret, of bitter weeping, weeping, constant complaining, never finding rest. There is no possibility to be rightly related to God or with others or within yourself. Only evil turns them over to their desires because they're not interested in this world of righteousness that he has come to bring. So what is our invitation in this? What is Jesus' invitation to us in this parable? I want to suggest two things. One is that we live righteous lives by trusting in Jesus' saving work. The basis of your relationship is not your good or bad behavior. It's his life, death, and resurrection. Righteousness is this gift from God. It's not something we earn. It's something you receive from God by faith in Jesus. Because of your faith in Jesus, God treats you as if you were faithful in every moment of your life. That's the gift of his salvation. And this is why Paul will write in Philippians 3. He's, he's telling this church in Philippi, look, before I knew Jesus, I sought to live by the Old Testament covenant. And I did it really well. Actually, if anything, I should be like bragging about how well I lived into that I never answered my phone in church. I was always faithful. (laughs) He didn't say that. But he does say this in Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, What is more, I consider all of that, everything a loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. The ESV says rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
And then he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness, the right relatedness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This is something that we receive from him through faith. This is like wonderful news for those of us who are like painfully aware of how regularly we fall short of living in right relationship with God. Who feel like, man, like I know what Jesus calls me to, but I feel like I just keep falling on my face. I feel like I do it every day. I feel like the damage in my own life, I feel how, what happens when I don't live rightly related to them and how it starts to bleed into all my other relationships with other people. I feel that. And here we get this reminder that we actually are made righteous before God. We receive this from Him on the basis of faith in Jesus. That His life the work he has come to do actually gives us that righteousness. That's, that's why we're, we're told in 2 Corinthians that God made Jesus become sin, to take that on so that we might become the righteousness of God. We receive that in faith. And so an invitation for us is actually to live righteous lives by trusting that, not basing it on how well our joy or happiness, on how well we have lived it this week, but actually trusting in his saving work. And from that place, I think, is the second invitation, which is to live righteous lives by being faithful to our relationship with Him. All of us know what it's like to be in a relationship where maybe one person is carrying more of the weight, more of the responsibility. And after, a, you know, for a while, maybe you get up for like a season. But then at a certain point, you're like, like, know if you actually consider me a friend anymore. It doesn't really feel like it goes both ways. I don't really feel like you're invested. I don't feel like you actually care. And when that happens, it's because someone's articulating that this relationship, we're not in on right, we're not rightly related right now. Something's off. We cannot call ourselves followers of Jesus and then go and live however we want. You cannot identify as a Christian and have no interest in taking the way of Jesus. That's not how discipleship works. He does care about us making this decision where we put our trust in him. But if that isn't followed by a life living in response to his saving work, then something is wrong. That's the selfish abuse of this relationship that we've been brought into. Because we're saying, I want what you will do for me, but I don't actually want to live by the terms of this relationship. It's like a garden. Some of us love gardening in here. Some of us could care less. I want to pay someone else to do it. If our relationship with Jesus is like a garden that we tend to, what happens when you don't tend to it? Well, that thing just gets mangy and overgrown with all these different things that you didn't plant, but somehow showed up in there. We have to tend to that relationship to care for it, if we want to see the things grow that we're meant to. If we want to see love, joy, peace, patience, righteousness, self-control, kindness, all the fruit, all these other things, if we want to see other people benefit from even our lives, if we want to be a community that actually blesses our city, our neighborhood, 
then we actually have to tend to this relationship. And so there's something here that's convicting because there's a part of me, and I'm sure for some of us in the room, where we feel like, man, like, do I live like that? Do I tend to this relationship? Or am I mostly kind of just like enjoying that first point, the righteousness that I've received? But then, more often than not, I'm losing sight of this relationship. It's like I was talking to a friend, and you can be aware that God is present in a room, in a space. But then there's a difference between being aware that they're present and actually interacting with them. Actually being mindful of them. And part of our lives as disciples of Jesus is that we learn to live in such a way where we are always mindful of him. Where we stop and listen to his promptings. Daryl Johnson, he'll, he'll say, righteousness means being faithful to the relationship, which means dealing on, a f- on fundamental levels of honesty and justice and mercy and servanthood. It is to these more basic levels that Jesus calls us. Righteousness is all about relational integrity and wholeness, a relational integrity and wholeness that encompass the totality of life. And what Jesus teaches us through this parable is that I care so deeply about righteousness that I will go to great lengths to make you rightly related to me. I will lay down my life so that you can experience being rightly related to my Father, so that you could be rightly related with one another, so that you could experience this rightly relatedness within yourself, that there's peace here and It can even be possible within all of creation. But there's a life that I have for you that that I actually enable you to live into, and it comes with this righteousness. And at the end of the age, I'm going to be looking for those who actually took it all seriously, who didn't dismiss it, who didn't just seek to kind of like get comfortable. Well, you know what? I, uh, I, I was one time I prayed, but then the rest of my life... You couldn't even tell if I cared about Jesus or not. And I'm not saying that's any of us here, but, I, but there's this picture here that Jesus is giving us where he cares about righteousness this much. He wants us to know him, to experience that life with him, not to miss out on it. So Jesus, we come before you now. And we confess that we want life with you. We confess that there are moments where we lose sight of it, where um, our fear stops us from actually trusting you and living in relationship with you. Uh, um, We've disordered our priorities, God. And there's been things in our life where we elevate doing this thing over actually coming to you trusting you in a certain area of our life, Lord. We confess, God, that there are times where we're just so busy that that, that garden of our relationship with you gets, um, we, don't, we don't tend to it. And we feel the relational fallout in all these other places of our lives. 
And so, Lord, I just want to pray for those of us who, who actually want to turn from that. Say right now, Jesus, we, we confess that, but we also turn from it. That you, the righteous one, we recognize you as the king who saves. And you have come to bring us into right relationship with the Father. And then have that righteousness just bleed into all of the facets of our lives. And so, Jesus, we, I ask you to do that by your spirit, that that, that saving act, your spirit would then translate it, translate it and make it reality in our lives, that we would experience the peace that comes between us and you and others and ourselves. I pray for those who maybe actually haven't made that decision, Lord, that you would lead them and enable them to take that step of trusting in you, Jesus. Pray for those who have actually just kind of forgot about it and need to be reminded of the gift of being made right with God because of Jesus. But I also pray that your spirit would empower us as your people to live into that reality, to live into that relationship where we walk with you and walk in the ways of Jesus. That we would walk in faith and live by faith. So I ask that you would empower us, God, where we feel weakest, where it feels the hardest we ask for more of you. Ask for that in the areas of, of, of relationships with others, God, in, in, in the areas of um, our finances, of work, of our kids, our parents, Lord, our neighbors, in all the areas where we just feel like this large gap, where there isn't peace, we ask for your spirits who empower and enable us to walk in your ways so that we would experience the flourishing you came to bring, so that the city would experience the flourishing you want and long to bring to it, so that our church community would experience that flourishing, Lord. And I pray this for your glory and our joy. Amen.